Let the word go The first. challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s is a pioneering program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of shared values. Sixty years later, we examine our divisions, our connections, our shared pains and successes in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Americans spend twice as much on health care than people living in other developed countries. But we land near the bottom of the heap in terms of our health. One aspect is our ability to access and afford health care, especially lower income Americans. But another aspect is what we eat, and what we eat, ate. That's the focus of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So we're fortunate to have with us as our guests today, David Montgomery and Anne McClay, who are the authors of this book, What Your Food Ate, central to the discussion and the topic that we're going to be discussing today. I might begin, Dave, you're a geomorphologist at the University of Washington, and I practiced that. It's almost as hard to say as a meteorologist, which of course is what I am, and, and you're a biologist and a science writer too. Tell me a little bit, Dave, first of all, if you'd explain what a geomorphologist is, but also how did your concentrations, your professional focus, lead you to the topic of what you cover in the book? Yeah, well, the, the short answer to what a geomorphologist is, is the kind of geologist that studies the here and now of geology. So mm -hmm. flooding, landslides, why the Cascades are as high as they are, the, the forces that shape the topography we know and we live on and interact with in our daily lives, mm -hmm. that's what a geomorphologist studies. And in terms of how your paths led you to looking at food and the things that affect food quality, how did you end up moving in that direction then? Well, it's been a long journey. <laughs> You know, I started out studying rocks and a biologist. Mm -hmm. The short answer is when you, what do you get when you mix geology, rocks, and biology? You get soil. And so uh, I started working on books years ago looking at a, a, the story of how uh, soil erosion affected civilizations mm -hmm. and their longevity and gradually came to appreciate more and more the role of soil in not only the longevity of societies but ultimately human nutrition, the fertility of the soil and Anne as a biologist was a key part of thinking about how to put all those pieces together that would lead you from studying rocks to eventually talking about how the way we farm affects the nutritional value of our food. And, and what was your initial concentration in biology? Was this a natural flow or did it, like most things, involve yeah. some S-curves? That's a good question. I mean, long, long ago mm -hmm. in high school, I remember in my biology class, the teacher, she really wanted me to become a microbiologist. And I thought, oh, I mean, I like looking through the microscope and I like seeing all these little things, but really, I like plants mm -hmm. and I like to see things that I could, you know, get my hands on. And so I kind of eschewed that and set it aside. And what is so ironic is both this book and then the previous book that we collaborated on, which is called The Hidden Half of Nature, the microbial world plays a huge role in uh, soil and soil health. And so all these years later, I thought, Maybe she was right all along, and that microbiology was my thing. But in between, you know, now and way back then, I sort of um, focused in the what's called the natural history or field biology mm -hmm. aspect of of biology. And so again, this is plants and animals and 
you know, binoculars and field journals and things like that. And that led me actually into really desperately wanting to have a garden because plants never get up and run away from you. You can get your hands on them, you can grow them, you can prune them, do all these things. And that sort of then got us into the soil story in a way. And even though, you know, you can't pick up a piece of soil and see all those microorganisms, for me, and I have a pretty good imagination, you know, I read a lot, so I'm, I'm able to conjure up in my mind, I think this is what it looks like, and you combine that with, you know, reading papers and stuff like mm -hmm. that, and you get, you can kind of build your own picture of this microbial world. One of the fascinating things when I was reading your book is you made the statement that if you think the food that you ate, that your parents or grandparents prepared, tasted better than what you get today, you're not imagining it. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about whatever is behind that uh, perception, that feeling, and then your statement. Yeah, you know, we've all heard people say that, right? It's, yeah. it's one of these things that you can kind of go, well, just how true is it, like you're asking? And that's one of the themes that we develop in the book that we didn't really know starting out, mm -hmm. but came naturally out of the research that we did, connecting all the little dots mm -hmm. that go from the way that, that we treat the soil, the way farmers treat their fields, to then um, the health and what gets into their crops, what then gets into livestock, what gets into us. Uh, and there's, there's been a lot of reports about declines in mineral density, for example, mm -hmm. in fruits and vegetables over the last, well, 80 years or so. And those range in value from like, you know, 5% up to 40, 50%, and some even at higher estimates. Wow. You know, big changes in yeah. what's actually in our food, so that, you know, that apple a day that, you know, you, you might, uh, advise people might to take eat. Two now. You might take two <laughs> or more. <laughs> um, but one of the things we explore in the book was, well, what, how's the connection with that and flavor? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there's uh, a number of the compounds that it turns out that, that farming can influence, things like vitamins and minerals, mineral micronutrients, things like zinc or selenium that we don't need a lot of, but we do need a lot. We need very much, but we don't need much of it. Um, and also uh, compounds that plants make called phytochemicals, um, things that, uh, those things can influence the flavor profile. Mm -hmm. And different amino acids, if I'm remembering this correctly, mm -hmm. um, can also influence the flavor profile. And those are all things that farming practices can influence. Mm -hmm. And so we go through trying to connect those dots in the book, and, but it seems like there's a very real effect in terms of the way the food that we're eating today, even before you get to the pro food processing part of the deal. Um, the food that we're eating today isn't quite the same as the food that had been grown um, in different ways. Yeah, there's an interesting um, story that we tell in the book. I, and I, when I, we do public talks, I, I always like to introduce it as the story of two tomatoes. <laughs> and it, it's because these researchers in Florida they had this cultivar called the Floridate. So this is a beautiful looking tomato. It was created in the 1970s, stores well, ships well, all that stuff. And then this other little puny potato, tomato that is used in a lot of tomato breeding, but it's a cherry and people are looking mm -hmm. for yield and big and stuff like that. And then it turned out, <laughs> you put these two tomatoes in front of people and the Floridate gets the big thumbs down because it is bland. And what they do like that gets a thumb, thumbs up is this little cherry. They did further investigation of why, what's behind this thumbs up? Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting to me, I'm interested in food anyway, so this was just sort of like, what is going on here? And it turns out that the flavor profile that they keyed in on 
had to do with the levels that, you know, high or low levels mm -hmm. of some particular nutrients. One of those, interestingly, we don't typically associate omega-3 fats with tomato, but there was more in the preferred tomato mm -hmm. than the, the bland one. There was also um, some particular amino acids. And then, like Dave just mentioned, there was some um, phytochemicals. So these are naturally produced mm -hmm. compounds that plants make. And so this whole thing, this whole mixture all together, they figured this is what the flavor profile is like behind this tomato that people just, you know, hands down, this is what their bodies and all of this feedback between our gut and our brain and as we're taking in food. So that to me was very interesting that maybe, just maybe, we've long uh, associated flavor, mm -hmm. not consciously, Jeff, but unconsciously, the way our brain and our gut can sense things. We know that flavor is linked to nutrition and so evolutionarily, we would be gravitating toward those kinds of foods so that we get enough of the micronutrients, you know, a vitamin C or selenium or zinc or whatever it is. So it's pretty interesting. There is a difference there. I think this flows naturally out of what you mentioned, but you uh, cite the fact that we spend twice as much as most other nations on healthcare, not to look at the healthcare system per se, but that this is going to be, I think, if I remember correct, correctly, and do correct me if I'm wrong, that this is going to be the first generation that doesn't live as long as their parents, either our generation or whatever, uh, did. Is that true, and how does that relate to the research you've done, that you've looked at, et cetera? Yeah. Well, we always like to say human health is a, is a complicated thing in that there's, of course, our genes right. that we got from our parents. Even more recently, what we're now realizing is there's, uh, we have a lot more genes in us that didn't come from our parents. It's mm -hmm. actually from our microbiome. So this is the communities of microbes that live mostly uh, all over and uh, on the outside and inside of us, but primarily in the lower part of the digestive tract. So we've got these microbial genes mm -hmm. that are also at work. We have environmental exposures is that, what's the water quality and air quality like mm -hmm. and so on. So these are all factors that come together to influence our health. And what is, you know, public health folks who study sort of these trends in longevity and are seeing more chronic diseases occurring earlier in younger and younger generations, mm -hmm. they think it's probably, I mean, our genes don't change, the ones we got from our mom and our dad, mm -hmm. but certainly microbiomes change. We uh. know that. And the way that you acquire that, you know, from from the moment of birth forward, that's obviously very different than it was, you know, 100 years, 10,000 years ago. Okay. And uh, diet also has a huge effect. So these things that we just discussed being at higher levels in certain foods th that benefit our health, okay. we really should be thinking about that because it's, along with our microbiome, that's a modifiable factor. What if we grew our food so that it was as nutrient dense as possible? Mm -hmm. This is all, you know, these are all questions we raise in the book. Yeah, and the other parallel there is that the, the rise of chronic diseases in the post-Second World War era really mm -hmm. sort of is mirrored by the decline in infectious diseases up until the, the, the COVID pandemic. But 
there was a big change in not only what we eat, but how we grow it, and mm -hmm. therefore, as we're arguing in the book, um, what's actually in our food. And some of the biggest things that you can find evidence for farming practices actually change turn out to be things that, in the medical literature, can be connected to uh, the either delaying or preventing the onset of chronic diseases or even helping to manage some of them. Um, and so one of the hypotheses is sort of an additional contributing element to all the things that Ann was mentioning was whether or not our diet has enough of those health supporting compounds relative mm -hmm. to what we're used to in terms of our long-term evolutionary history and how our bodies are put together and what we've, we've eaten for centuries. So th that's one of the parallels that is um, of great interest to us that we dug into to try and connect the dots to figure out, well, how much of a story is there? And we think there's a pretty, a pretty uh, compelling story there. One of the things, and I want to go back to some of the medical uh, examples that you had, but uh, this is not a new discovery. Maybe we're rediscovering mm. things because you talked about the Greek physician Hippocrates. And uh, one of the questions he asked, I think, related to what do you eat? What soil was it grown in? So this is not really new, it's just, is it just being rediscovered then? Yeah, and, and I think being grounded in modern science mm -hmm. in the sense that a lot of the issues that we write about in the book, uh, and that some of which you can trace back, threads of the ideas back to the classical Greeks and Hippocrates in particular, you know, people who've been observant through the ages have noticed that, you mm -hmm. know, if you're eating food grown off of good, of healthy land with healthy soils, um, it benefits your health. Yeah, and what's, um Sort of some of that newer science is has to do is with the microbiome, and soil has a microbiome. So some of these microbes, this is bacteria, this is fungi, even viruses. Mm -hmm. So these are the tiniest creatures on Earth, and they are assisting the botanical world, in essence, our crops and even wild plants, with getting some of these things out of the soil and into plants. Mm -hmm. So these are nutrients important for plant health. And then we, we also talk a bit in the book about um, how plants are keeping these microbial communities sort of um, in their stable, so to speak. And mm -hmm. so plants are making compounds that flow out of their roots. And all of these compounds feed the soil microbiome. That's what keeps these beneficial microbes congregating around a root system. So they're consuming these exudates, and then they are releasing their own byproducts. Mm -hmm. So these microbes are making things with the plant compounds, turning them into new things, and the plant takes them back up. And some of these byproducts are really important for plant defense mm -hmm. and plant health. Uh, there's probably a nutrient linkage or flavor, excuse me, flavor linkage here with some of these microbial metabolites mm -hmm. that are being taken back up again. And so this is a whole new um, way of thinking about uh, how are things entering crops mm -hmm. and then making it into animal foods, you know, beef, chicken, and so on. Right. And then when you look at the plant and animal foods in the human diet, that all comes right into comes us. Comes down to us. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the case and you were talking about how we've applied modern science and there was a case that you cited and it was a medical conference in Cheshire, England. And I think that they were starting to explore some of these questions. What did they find? What did they present? And how did some of these end up getting put into practice? Yeah, that was uh, an 
what was it, 1939, if I remember it right? Mm, yeah, around um, there. Yeah, it was a, a group of physicians and agronomists in um, in England got mm -hmm. together to um, have this conference because there were a number of people who had been observing in their medical practices mm -hmm. that as the English diet was changing in the 20th century with more processed foods, more um, you know, processed wheat, white bread, as opposed mm -hmm. to the, the traditional wholemeal breads. Um, there were studies that were looking at changes in the vitamin content of certain foods, and physicians were starting to notice that, well, we're like, our public is not very healthy, um, even though they have plenty to eat. Right. And so, you know, what was the connection there? Um, and there was a lot of concern at the time about whether the new style of growing food uh, with, um, you know, intensive tillage and a lot of uh, nitrogen fertilizer mm -hmm. use was somehow changing the healthfulness if that's a word, of, of the food that was getting into people. And so these doctors were really sort of putting out, you know, their lived ex professional experience mm -hmm. and trying to connect that with people who were thinking about how food was grown with the farmers and agronomists. And it was kind of a groundbreaking um, statement of people think, wondering how much does the way that we grow our food actually influence our collective health? And they put down kind of a marker that said, we think it's a lot. Um, yeah. And it took a long time for science to catch up. Um, because at the time, people were really, this was the new style of, of how to grow food, the, you know, modern agriculture. How could right. that be bad? This is progress. But it turns out, as a, with so many things, when we think we're making progress in one area, we may have overlooked a side effect. We may have overlooked some unintentional consequences. Mm -hmm. And that's where science has been playing a lot of catch up in terms of the, the effects of farming practices on micronutrients, on vitamins, and even in nutrition, recognizing the, the health value of phytochemicals, mm -hmm. which are not considered nutrients, but they're the things like lycopene in tomatoes or the, the beta carotene in carrots. Mm -hmm. that you can look, dig into the medical literature and there's evidence that they help, they serve as antioxidants and, and some compounds serve as anti-inflammatories. Um, but there's not been a lot of recognition, at least early on, about what their value was mm -hmm. in the human diet. So there wasn't a lot of attention paid to breeding for preserving high contents of those. Mm -hmm. And so as we, as we bred crops for high yield, and as we fertilized with a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, which disrupts some of those microbial symbioses that Anne was talking mm -hmm. about, those relationships between the soil life and the plants, um, it interrupted the, the provisioning process for micronutrients for plants and their phytochemical production. But that wasn't what we were trying to push in agriculture. We were shooting for yield because feeding right. the world was the priority, mm -hmm. as you know, as it perhaps should be. Um, but we kind of took our eye off the ball of what it means to nourish the world, and in part because we didn't understand all the connections. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of see that as the challenge today as to how to uh, get agriculture to rise to beyond the challenge of feeding the world to better nourishing the world without sacrificing the ability to feed everybody. Mm -hmm. I guess the next question that flows out of that is they began to recognize this, the agronomists, the physicians. Did they put this into practice? And if so, did they see what they expected to see from that? So they, they were not able to control people's diets um, per se, but there's another interesting thing in the, in the book that is about what happened um, during World War II and mm -hmm. diets changed. Um, sugar plummeted. Uh, in the English diet, other foods came back in. And it's thought that sort of as a combination of, uh, of lessening some things in the diet, there was a little, there, people were eating fewer calories. And interestingly, 
the health of the English people, not everyone across the board, but, but you know, sort of on average, mm -hmm. health was better after the war because of these sort of self, somewhat self-imposed, somewhat government-imposed um, right. dietary Rationing changes. and so forth. Yeah, so right. you had very different health outcomes during the Second World War on the continent and in England. Because mm -hmm. in England, they consciously changed the diet in ways that turned out to be much healthier. Uh, whereas on the continent, there were like severe food shortages and there were, there were some real problems in, in yeah. some areas. Um, but there were some other experiments that, that, that people at that time sort of looked at and, and cited. Mm -hmm. um, a few in terms uh, that uh, a gentleman named Sir Albert Howard cited in his work. And he was mm -hmm. an early pioneer of organic agriculture, one of the agronomists who was talking with those physicians we were talking with earlier. And in fact, I think who inspired the meeting. Um, and he pointed to some examples of uh, boarding schools uh, in England where they switched, they had um, chronic, a lot of chronic sickness, mm -hmm. just sort of a lot of colds and so forth among the, ki the kids that were at the boarding schools. And they did some experience with shifting the diet from more sort of modern fertilizer grown crops to ones that were um, fertilized with compost and grown in ways that were much more organic. Mm -hmm. um, and they noticed huge changes in just the health profile of the students at the school. Um, fewer people were sick, there were fewer uh, transmittable diseases, um, they, the, the kids were healthier. Um, Interesting. And that was a very uh, intriguing example. Yeah. Um, and then one other example was at Eve Balfour's farm, another the woman who was very intimately involved with mm -hmm. this early um, uh, organic agriculture movement in England. She, ran, she decided to turn her farm into an experimental farm. And they wanted to see if they grew things in a different way than the modern prescription for growing them, mm -hmm. would they have different nutritional value? And what would happen to the health of the livestock that they kept on the, on the farm? And what they noticed in the first, I think after the first 10 years or so of the experiment, that the livestock was much healthier on their farm than on the control part of the farm where they mm -hmm. maintained um, um, what we now call conventional practices. Um, and then they also started testing what was in the soil um, and what was in uh -huh. the, the, the crops that were grown. And they started to see differences. They ran out of money in the 60s and the whole experiment fell apart. But it was an interesting start in looking at what the degree to which farming practices would impact the health of the land, the animals that were on it, mm -hmm. and what would then be in the food that was produced off of it. So there was some early work yeah. that started to connect those dots, and there was a fair amount, of, actually a shocking amount of work that we found in sort of old research papers. I mean, nothing's mm -hmm. more fun than reading re research papers from the 1940s, right? I mean, actually, uh, we, in some ways, they're more understandable <laughs> than, than today's. Now today. Actually, yeah, that's true, yeah. It, it, jargon has just <laughs> yeah, increased, uh -huh. increased, increased, yeah. But there's a surprising number that expressed, that demonstrated effects of changes in vitamin or mineral density as a result of switching to more um, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. But again, yield was the goal and the nitrogen fertilizers boosted yield. There was another interesting part and I guess this is maybe the journalist side of me sort of latched onto that, but there were some dramatic findings in experiments with rats. Yeah. Tell us about that. People are out there going, rats? rats? What does that yeah. have to do with this? But tell us about that. Yeah, well, r rodents are a pretty common experimental subject. And mm -hmm. so I think you're, you, this is um, experiments done by uh, a guy named McCarrison. And what he, and there were pictures, you know, black and white pictures from the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And it was very clearly laid out. These rats, you know, they were, they were just unhealthy. You could just see that from the pictures. And it was, it was just dead obvious. And then, so McCarrison was in, um, 
what's now modern day Pakistan in the Himalayas. And so he it was interesting to him because their diet was so different and mm -hmm. they ate a diet um, rich in, in pulses. So these are leguminous plants. These are things like peas and beans and lentils and okay. all of these things today that we're supposed to eat because they're good for us. And he noticed that the physique and the health of the people in that region was quite good. And he thought, what if we try and get a diet as similar to this mm -hmm. into these rats and compare that with the standard English diet? And the rats that were eating this, this other diet that was not the English diet, they looked really good. They were healthy. They lived longer. You know, they dissected these rats, looked at organs. All the organs were in, you know, much better shape. So that was sort of how you used to do dietary studies. Mm -hmm. You still, to some extent, you know, that's happening in modern research labs, but it was just such a stark example. And wasn't there also a difference in terms of their behavior? Yes, there was. Um, poor diet, more mean. Yeah. Mean rats, aggressive rats on the healthier diet. Um, you know, I'm not a rat behaviorist, but there was not, you know, these weird aggressive behaviors mm -hmm. happening um, among those kinds of rats. And this is where um, it, it really allows us to see how diet affects mental health mm -hmm. in people. Well, this has been, I was almost going to say food for thought. That would be a very <laughs> bad pun. But uh, this has given us a really solid foundation. You both generously agreed to continue this conversation. Uh, the clock ticks on, but what we're going to do is we're going to conclude this version of Challenge 2.0. And in next week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we'll return and continue this conversation, looking not only at some more of the details that you've talked about in terms of some of the food sources we get, but also what some of the solutions might be. So uh, thank you both very, very much. That's yeah. Good. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. Do tune in again next week for our continued conversation. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.